Our scripture reading for the sermon this morning comes from the book of Ezekiel. After some time away from the book of Ezekiel, gave us time to stretch a little bit. We're back into the woods. So, and we pick up from chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 16. We will read the first 14 verses of this chapter. So Ezekiel 16 verses 1 through 14. Take courage and receive this with love and with faith. This is the word of God for us this morning. Ezekiel 16, 1 through 14. Thus says the Lord. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. And say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem. Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth on the day you were born, your cord was not cut. Nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were aboard on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed, passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the, cor the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings on your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. We need to address one of the elephants in the room. It has come up again recently, so let's talk about it. The question is, 
why would a Brazilian pastor living in Philadelphia support the New England Patriots? <laughs> Whether you care or not for sports or football, this can be a rather puzzling question. Yet the answer is quite simple. You see, what we Brazilians call American football became popular back there in Brazil in the early 2000s when some sports channels began to show some NFL games. That being the case, I simply chose to support the best team available. Why would I choose to be a fan of a bad team? At that time, of course, and your laughs indicate that you know where I'm going with this, there was this one particular team that won three championships in the early aughts and went on to dominate the league for the next 20 years. It just happened to be that Boston team you all hate. Look, I was a teenager who had never seen football before. Unlike Elizabeth, my daughter, my family did not have a team for me to be born into. I was 4,000 miles away from the closest stadium I couldn't choose by location. I could choose any team I want. Again, why would I choose a bad team? Be honest. Whether you are an Eagles fan who now dislikes me a little bit more or not, isn't this, in general, how we all live? When you do your groceries, to go away from the sports metaphor for a while, for example, you might choose the cheapest cereal brand because of the economic benefit. Maybe you choose the one with the most sugar because it tastes better. Perhaps you will take home the one that maybe doesn't taste that good, but it's the healthiest option. Shopping. Sports, health insurance, finding a church, finding a spouse. We always choose what we think it's best for us. Whatever best means, whether it's a good or a bad thing, we never choose anything just because it will hurt or harm us, do we, if we have a choice. And see, there's, I'm saying this, there's nothing necessarily wrong with this approach. Again, we don't want to go out choosing things that will hurt and harm us in principle. Yet you start thinking about these things, and you come to church this morning, and if you think about it, this can become a very serious problem for each one of us. Because the question that we can have when, you think of, when we think about that is, what if God only chose people who can do something for him in return? Think about that for a second. Be honest with yourself. Looking at your life as a whole, your ups and your downs, your best and your worst days, is there something in it 
for God in you? What's in it for Him? Most of us answer this question in these two ways. Some of us feel miserable all the time because it seems like our ability to sin is greater than God's willingness to save. Yet I'm afraid some of us never even worry about these things. We've grown accustomed to God's love. We were born into a John 3.16 world. We expect God's love and even sometimes take it for granted. Why would God not love me, you might think? Today, as we begin our walk through the longest chapter of Ezekiel, we will see why and how a God, a good God, would choose bad people like us, even if it brings harm to Him. And whether you admit that you are that bad or not, through the pen of Ezekiel, God will show us that He is not looking for beautiful people to love them, but that He finds unlovable people and then makes them beautiful. In summary, we will see this morning that God's free love for His people is greater than all their sins. Again, God's free love for His people is greater than all their sins. We'll see that in two points this morning. And the first is God's love is pure grace and mercy. God's love is pure grace and mercy. We see that in the first seven verses of our text. Before we go too deep in it, you might be questioning on a way higher level, where are we in this book and who is this guy, Ezekiel? So let's review a little bit. Ezekiel was an Israelite priest sent to exile to Babylon along with some of his people. That puts the book of Ezekiel chronologically right at the end of the book of 2 Kings. And we've seen in chapter 1, if you were here, how God appeared to Ezekiel at the margins of the river Kebar, there in Babylon, and then made him a prophet. So in this moment of the history of the people of Israel, as God's people wondered why and how they ended up in exile, far from their land, far from their temple, God used, is using Ezekiel as we go along to the, in the book. He used Ezekiel's preaching to, in the words of a commentator, tear down the things on which his hearers depended in this present world. So they would see the greater things God would do in and through them. He would tear those things on which they depended, on which they had pride. The earthly things that they put their trust on so they could clear, clearly see 
who God is and what he was doing for them. And it's in this environment, in this context, that we now reach chapter 16. As we were reading our portion this morning, you might have noticed, if you were looking ahead, that this is a huge chapter. Ezekiel 16, just so you know, is longer than six of the minor prophets and almost as long as Malachi. Just this chapter. And what is this chapter, this very long chapter about? In terms of content, its content, it's very clearly summarized to us in verse 2 when God says, Make known to Jerusalem her abominations. And then we go on and we read 63 verses of explicit imagery and graphic descriptions of sad abominations. Of this chapter, I must warn you, the old preacher Charles Spurgeon said that a minister can scarcely read it in public. This one will try. But to make it more manageable, to chew this chapter in smaller bites, today we begin a four-part series in this chapter, a series within a series, if I could say so, on chapter 16. Today's probably the lightest part. We'll go all downhill from there. Let's look at the first 14 verses. Ezekiel 16, as we begin to see today, God will, through his prophet, remind his people of how and why they ended up where they are. To do so, God will tell them the story and the history of Jerusalem from his perspective and show them to the people their past, their present, their future. And as he focuses on Jerusalem, they will come to realize that their past have not always been as golden and glorious as some of them thought. thought. So he starts the story, verse 3, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. In this chapter, as I said, Jerusalem is presented as this metaphorical person and her beginnings could not be less honorable. This is not your mother's holy city on Mount Zion, the great city of the great King David, Jerusalem of whom glorious things are spoken. No, this is the despised daughter of two pagan nations. What? Is he talking about? First, to look at Jerusalem from this perspective, it reminds us that even the great father Abraham, who would, if Jerusalem would be a person, would be her father. Before he was called by God, he was a mere Aramean, wandering aimlessly and idolatrously in this world. But then, of course, this also reminds us, in terms of concrete history, that Jerusalem was indeed a pagan city when Israel came from Egypt. It was the land of the Canaanites. And even after the conquering of the land by Joshua, it took centuries until David conquered the city of Jerusalem from the Jebusites in 2 Samuel 5. 
So what God is telling them is more than just history, but this theological history of the city. And it's not as great as they would like to admit. Israel's own origins, says one commentator, were just as pagan as any of the nations that they so despised. They had no special claim on God, no special reason for their election. If we're just looking at their origins, they were not better than any of the nations that they thought they were so much better than. And this becomes more evident. God goes on with this metaphor in verses 4 and 5, where after mentioning the parents of baby Jerusalem, God's present her at this unwanted baby, left alone in an open field under the sun to die. Dare I ask you to imagine the scene? This little baby to whom the most basic postpartum procedures were denied, crying under the hot Palestinian sun alone, in blood, minutes away from dying probably from starvation, Someone once called this an assault on our imagination. And like I said, it will get worse before it gets better. But then in verses 6 and 7, we find this first refreshing gust of relief in this moment of despair when God himself walks by And he sees this poor, unwanted, desperate child agonizing and simply says, as God is wont to live. As he did to the reality, to the universe, to the sun, moon, and stars, to the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, to Adam and Eve, to you and me in the wombs of our mothers, he said, live. And it was so. And he saw that it was good. He speaks. And listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. As the old hymn says. So you see, as you start to look at this image, this picture, this story. That before Jerusalem, the representation of God's people could have done anything to even remotely deserve his love, to earn his favor, God saves her from certain death. Two things are happening here. In his mercy, God does not give the poor, wicked, and undeserving sinners the fate that they deserve. And in his grace, he freely gives what they had done nothing to deserve. So he does not give a deserved death, but gives life. 
we see in this handful of verses that in His grace and mercy, He did not set up to find a beautiful baby of noble birth, but He found His people drowning in their own blood, and He told them to live. And it was so. The point here for Ezekiel's audience, but a point that is very clear for us too, is that there is nothing we can do to deserve God's love, to earn it, to conquer it. We owe our very existence to His command and to His loving willingness to love us even when we were unwanted, incapable of doing anything for Him, or even for ourselves. So we see in this first section that Ezekiel's original hearers must be reminded that they did not earn Jerusalem, the land, the temple, because they had any kind of merit. These things should never have become the sources of pride to them as it happened. But we also see for Ezekiel's contemporary hearers, I mean you and me, we are reminded, again, that we are not as good as we might think. We have not earned God's favor or God's love. Any pride we might have in the history or the accomplishments of this very church in the, building of its, in the beauty of its building and its history, in fulfilling our budget for 2023, or even personally in our own stories of success and victories. These things are not earned and should not be taken for granted. These good things come from God and from God alone. He uses ordinary means, but He uses ordinary means. As we'll sing later today, we bring nothing in our hands before God. And if He, and if he does not wash us, we will certainly die. But on the other hand, the section is also a great comfort for those who know all of this but think they are so bad that they are beyond, beyond God's reach and love. Great comfort for those who think they have outsinned God's grace and does not deserve any kind of love. Those who are afraid God will not love them because they are not smart, bright, beautiful, well put together, rich, anything. Because they think God will not love them because they have not met their own budgets. Landon Dowden, a commentator that I've quoted before in the series, says this about this chapter. To a world filled with abandonment, where marriages end and mothers or fathers walk out on children, 
to those who constantly think God will give up on them, drop them, or forsake them, to those who easily forget His grace that is greater than all our sin, to all of these, to all who hear, God gave Ezekiel 16 and its assurance that His love is fully grace and fully mercy. We do not earn it. We never could. These were the first things that we needed to see this morning. That through through God's loving mercy, the impending doom on this tiny baby girl abandoned to die is averted and reversed. Through God's loving grace, we receive what we did not deserve And we are growing into this resplendent, glorious queen, which will lead us to our second point. God's love is abundant and generous. We see that in verses 8 through 14. God's love is abundant and generous. Having Having saved baby Jerusalem, God then marries her when she grows older. And she flourishes and becomes this world-famous queen. In verse 8, he spreads the corner of his robe over her, a symbolic act of betrothal. You can think of Ruth and Boaz as that as a sign that they will get married. And then they do get married as he solemnly vows to her and enters into a covenant with her. And then in following verses, she receives all that she had been, uh, that she had not received before. She's cleansed and anointed in verse 9. Verse 10, she's clothed in the best of the ancient Near Eastern fashion. In verse 11, she's adorned with fine jewelry. In verse 13, he gives her the best food available. He gives to that young lady, everything that she should have been given as a baby, but was denied. And the consequence of all of that comes in verse 14. She becomes known among all nations, given this perfect splendor that was bestowed upon her by the Lord God. Again, it was given by God. It was not hers by nature. And again, like we've seen in the first point, this is all, of course, a big metaphor for the history of God's people. We can think in verses 6 and 7, the first section overall, alluding to God's old covenant with formerly pagan patriarch Abraham. He found them, and through Abraham and his sons, he gave life to a people. He said, live, and they multiplied. And then he saved them from their impending inevitable death in Egypt. That's kind of what the first half of the text is describing. And then this part that we are now, verses 8 to 14, cover then the periods from Mount Sinai, right after they left Egypt, when he gives them his law, He confirms his covenant with the famous words that he would be their God and they would be his people. You can imagine 
the book of Deuteronomy and the meeting of God in Mount Sinai and the covenant as a marriage ceremony before God and his bride, Israel. And then by the time we get to verse 14 of our text, we are basically arriving at David and Solomon's time when kings and queens from all over the world would come to marvel at the beauty of the land, of that golden temple, of the wisdom of its kings. And as we look at the history of Israel like this, as I've quoted before this pulpit many times, and we'll keep doing just because it's one of my favorite quotes from Martin Luther, the great German reformer, the love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to him. Which is a pretty good summary of these last verses, isn't it? The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing, pleasing to him. God found this dying, wallowing in blood baby, and now causes her to flourish to become this glorious, beautiful queen. This idea of God building up the glory of Israel, of course, is not new, is not something that Ezekiel invented. Back to Mount Sinai, Deuteronomy 26, God says that He would set Israel in praise, in fame, in honor, high above all nations that He has made. And they would be a people holy to him, their God. So the point of this generous and abundant mercy and grace were not only that Israel would look at herself and say, hey, I'm awesome, I'm so special. But it would be that their fame and their glory would be a visible sign of God's fame and glory for all the world to see. The novelty here in Ezekiel, if I can say so, is that he pushes this image even further and presents the nation as God's bride, God's wife. And her earthly splendor would witness of her husband's heavenly glory and power. This is what's happening here. Or at least... This is what God intended to. Because the sad part of it all, of course, and we know this and we don't need to read the whole chapter 16 to know, is that God's people turned it all upside down, didn't they? Like I said, in the following sermons, we'll cover, covering the rest of the chapter, we'll get into the details of that, but for now, we can simply, we don't need to go that far. We can simply remember verse 2. This, as promising as it is, is the story of Israel's abominations. So if Jerusalem were brought up to be God's holy bride, showing to this world his glory and splendor, we who are reading through Ezekiel already know from preceding chapters that her fame, yes, it spread, but the, frame, the fame of a promiscuous, promiscuous wife who went after other gods, other kings, 
soiling the name of her divine husband. And then it's time for us to look at ourselves again. Because picking up from this image, imagery from Ezekiel, New Testament writers constantly, as you probably are familiar with, describe the church as the bride of Jesus Christ. Paul probably had the same idea of Ezekiel in mind when he repeats, for example, that God chose and blessed the church for the praise of His glory three times just in Ephesians 1. He keeps getting back to that point. The glory of the church is for the praise of God's glory. And overall, his famous description of the church cleansed and sanctified, presented by Christ in splendor without spot or wrinkle. We have a very good guess that probably he came right from this text of Ezekiel. It's the same language again. So if that is how the Bible thinks of the church, how God thinks of the church as the bride of Christ like it was supposed to be, this great Jerusalem, the queen in Ezekiel 16, if that was to be the case, I must ask you and we must ask ourselves this morning, are we doing the same things that the people of Ezekiel's time did? God's church is supposed to be the concrete, concrete, visible witness of God's grace and mercy, God's saving grace and mercy, built up and set before all the nations for the praise of God's glory. So we must constantly be asking, is that what the nations are seeing When this world thinks of Christians, is this what they think about? When your friends at school or at work, your unbelieving relatives look at you, what do they see? Do they see the saving love, grace, and mercy of our God? freely offered to all of those who seek it, who seek Him? Do they see a church holy and without blemish? And even if we do our best, because I know some of us do try our best, and achieve this well sort of kind of holiness we still know if we are honest with ourselves that whatever the appearance that you might put on whatever appearance true genuine appearance that you might have God is the one that looks into our hearts who see us who sees us for who we truly are and as Ezekiel has been making it clear for a long time now we are deep down, a people of stubborn and cold hearts. Our best people, as I've said time and again, are people at best. The great news 
And there is great news for us in this text, in Ezekiel 16. The great news for us is that when God speaks of cleansing, clothing, and feeding His people, He is not merely talking about a warm bath, a pair of pants, and a cheesesteak. Since no human could ever fully and perfectly display His true glory and beauty to this world, God eventually sent us His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the God who walks by us, literally walking in this dusty earth and says, live. And to those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, we are made alive for Him by the power of His Spirit. He is the one that makes the church His bride, that clothes her with His justice and righteousness, that feeds her with His own body and washes and cleanses her with His Holy Spirit. And He did all of that because unlike us, He chose deliberately something that would harm Him. He chose something that cost His own life so that He could find us and reach us where we are and creates beauty in us for Him at the resurrection. And because all of that, when the Father looks at those who are united to Jesus, He now sees the beautiful holiness and glory that belongs to Jesus and that He generously, abundantly, out of grace and mercy, gives to us. And you, says Paul in Colossians 1, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And then John says in Revelation 19, as we've read this morning, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And then he concludes, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The love of your life is calling you, says Ezekiel. Come, live. Let us pray. Almighty everlasting God, you are always more ready to hear than we are to pray. And you're willing to give more than either we desire or deserve. Pour down upon us, Father, the abundance of your mercy. Forgiving those things of which our conscience, consciences are afraid. And giving us that which our prayers dare not to presume to ask. Give us more of Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his name we pray and together we say,
Amen.